Good evening, uh, everybody. Uh, welcome to this uh, special event uh, this evening, uh, organized uh, by Ideas Center at the LSE for the study of diplomacy and strategy. Let me first uh, introduce myself before I introduce you to my good friend and distinguished uh, visiting professor here at the London School of Economics, uh, Professor Gilles Capel from Sciences Po in Paris. Firstly, my name is Professor Michael Cox. I'm in the International Relations Department and with uh, my good friend uh, Arnie Westad uh, and co-director of, of Ideas itself. Uh, some of you may know something about Ideas. Um, with a big I, a big D, a big E, a big A, and a big S. Uh, we formed ideas uh, late, early last year. Um, I keep saying that unlike the world economy, ideas keeps expanding. Uh, we have uh, several events, public events, one of which you're seeing here uh, this evening. Uh, we participate in a number of the London School of Economics uh, global uh, partnerships with Sciences Po and uh, with uh, Beida, PKU University in Beijing. And we also have created a series of what we think are interesting and exciting programs, most recently on uh, Southeast Asia, Latin America and Africa. And we're delighted to announce, and it's very pertinent, for this evening's uh, lecture, uh, a Middle East program which we will be creating and, and indeed launching on the, on the 10th of uh, November. So that is, that is ideas and what we do, and this is part of what we do, uh, public events. Let me just say something about uh, the position uh, which Gilles Capel now holds. Uh, some years ago, through very generous funding, from a very good friend of the London School of Economics, Emmanuel Roman, who lives in London and works here, provided uh, financial support to create a newly named uh, chair named after his father, uh, Philip Roman. And so the chair was created three, four years ago called the Philip Roman Chair in uh, International Affairs. There have so far been two holders uh, of that chair, uh, Paul Kennedy, who was here for a year. Uh, last year was Professor Chen Jian of Cornell University, the famous scholar on the Chinese Revolution and the history of China, particularly since 1949. And so it's absolutely wonderful for this funding to now bring another great international scholar to the LSE, Professor uh, Gilles Capel, the third holder of the Philip Ramon Chair in International Affairs. But again, great thanks to, to Emmanuel Ramon for funding this very generously. Um, I don't think I need to say too much about Gilles. You will notice that he is French, although, of course, uh, originally the family was from Czechoslovakia. He's a very good friend, and most importantly of all, I think, for this evening, is one of the great world's experts on the Middle East, and on Islam. He has written voluminously over many years on Al-Qaeda in its own words, du jihad, al-fitna, the roots of radical Islam, jihad, the trail of political Islam, the war for the Muslim minds, bad moon rising, a chronicle of Middle East today, and on and on and on. 
I don't need to go on because I think Gilles is here to talk to you. You don't want to listen to me uh, any longer to talk on the topic of this evening's lecture. Welcome, Gilles, for this lecture, which we look forward to, Beyond Terror Martyrdom, the Future of the Middle East. Ladies and gentlemen, Gilles Capel. Uh, thank you very much, Mick. I, uh, this is the first time I'm a man of ideas because you asked me to wear the badge where it says ideas. So I feel thrilled. Um, and I would also like to thank my compatriot, uh, Emmanuel Roman, who uh, funded this chair. But as far as you mentioned, he did not give me this position because I'm French. You, you decided, no, right? Oh, you did that. Okay, fine. Um, so it's, 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 not it's not an affirmative action thing, right? Um, then... Um, Thank you very much for, uh, for inviting me to, um, to come to, to LSC, and I, 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 uh, I'm particularly uh, uh, glad to, to be here. As, um, as, as you know, um, Sciences Po, uh, which is my uh, alma mater, and uh, LSC are sister institutions, and uh, as many people don't know us uh, in areas where I spend a lot of time like the the Persian Gulf, when they asked me, what is Sciences Po? I said, it's the sister institution of LSE. So I'm longing for the day when people will ask me, what is LSE? And I say, it's the sister institution of Sciences Po. But I don't know whether I'll see that before my retirement, which is uh, going to um, happen soon, uh, hopefully. So um, the, the lecture tonight, uh, the title of which was uh, selected by uh, Professor um, uh, Mick Cox, this is not me up here, no. Uh, Beyond uh, Terror and Martyrdom, the Future of the Middle East is the, is the title of the, the last of my books that was published into, into your language and uh, translated into your language. And um, I'll, I'll try to sort of um, find out with you the, the, the rationale of, um, on the one hand, of... Um, what I would call the, 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 the clash of the two grand narratives that we have witnessed uh, over um, in, during this last decade. Uh, on the one hand, the, the grand narrative of Al-Qaeda, the grand narrative of, uh, which I would call of, of, of jihad through martyrdom. And on the other hand, uh, the grand narrative of the Bush administration, which is the grand narrative of the war on terror. And uh, I will try to show how those two sort of grand narratives uh, ran parallel, ultimately failed, and uh, what we are left with now, uh, i.e. Uh, with uh, the sort of new worldview which is being shaped by the, by the Obama administration. Uh, and uh, we've all noticed that the brand new uh, Nobel Prize uh, Winner was um, was honoured by the noble uh, uh, people more for um, his uh, his ideas than for his accomplishments, because in terms of of accomplishments for the time being, there we have not seen much. Quite the contrary, uh, the Middle East process is uh, uh, reaching a sort of a zero level. Uh, Iraq is in turmoil, and Afghanistan is going really bad. Uh, by the same token, uh, Al-Qaeda uh, has been, to a large extent, replaced 
uh, as the sort of champion of the anti-Western and anti-American, anti-Zionist, anti-what-have-you cause in the region by a new actor um, who's uh, impersonated um, uh, in the uh, elegant Mr. Ahmadinejad from Iran and uh, who is, um, if you wish, who is um, sort of helped, backed uh, within the, the Arab, uh, non-Farsi speaking, but the Arab world by Hezbollah and its, and its prominent dimension in terms of the only uh, Arab party or the, even the Arab state, if you wish, uh, that could ever win a victory against Israel or at least a non-defeat against Israel, which, which gives it an enormous amount of prestige. Uh, and I believe that we are now seeing... Um, a world a system in the Middle East which is, which is changing when as opposed to the sort of Bush against Al-Qaeda two grand narratives which, which molded the past on, on the remnants of those, of those two uh, fade grand narratives is something new is emerging which I am unable to, um, uh, to explain I mean in terms because this is a, this, a process in the making but I would like to share some ideas with you about that and then we can have a, we, maybe you can help me in the discussion as I see many prominent experts of the region here. So um, let's start with, uh, with what I would call the, the Al-Qaeda uh, ground, uh, ground narrative in, uh, of uh, jihad through martyrdom. In, uh, in year 2000, I published a book in French uh, which was called... Uh, Jihad, Expansion et Déclin de l'Islamisme, Expansion and Decline of Islamism, which, uh, in which I explained that uh, the radical Islamist movements were in decline. And uh, then came, uh, and people said, ah, interesting. And, and then came um, September 11, and uh, as early as September 12, uh, a number of voices in the uh, in Frogland on the other side of the channel, uh, started to ask me to resign from my job in the university, <laughs> saying that they were not paying taxes for such a fraud to, uh, uh, to, to survive and um, things like that. And, uh, well, uh, patience is one of the virtues of the, the academic. And uh, so uh, I... Um, I tried to say that uh, whatever uh, was done by bin Laden proved me right, which even uh, which uh, um, brought me more uh, laughters. And um, and but I still believe it proved me right. Uh, to what extent? Because I and uh, if if you read uh, Al Qaeda's literature, which uh, something which I tried to, to do and uh, this is something I, I tried to, the message I passed to the, the LSC students today is that you, you cannot really study the Middle East if you don't have the language. I mean, in order to understand Al-Qaeda and the way that those people think and see the world, you have to write their text in Arabic. Otherwise, it's, uh, you'll, never be, uh, you'll never understand anything. Uh, and uh, if you read uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri's text, uh, he is the real ideologue in Al-Qaeda, uh, Zawahiri circulated uh, on the web by the end of 2001 a little book called Knights with a K under the Prophet's K in the beginning uh, under the Prophet's banner that explained that 
all through the 1990s, uh, Islamist radical movements had been a total failure. That they had tried to duplicate the Afghan jihad of the 1980s that had been successful in ousting the Red Army out of Afghanistan. And then they tried to duplicate that in Egypt, in Algeria, in Bosnia, in Chechnya, in Kashmir, and it was a failure. They could not mobilize the masses that were afraid and that would not go with uh, al-Qaeda uh, against their apostate rulers, the Mubaraks or the, the, the Shadlis or what have you of this world. It was a failure. So they have to find another strategy. This was why they, they, they were in decline, if you wish. They had to, they had to find a, a totally different strategy. Uh, simultaneously, in the 1980s, there was another strategy that worked, something on which al-Qaeda had no real access, that, that al-Qaeda wanted to sort of to hijack for its own purpose. And that is what happens in Israel and around Israel. Um, the uh, Hezbollah, thanks in Lebanon, thanks to its uh, martyrdom operations or suicide attacks, I mean, if you're favorable, it's martyrdom operation. If you're hostile, it's suicide attacks. Um, strategy managed to oust the Israeli army from uh, southern Lebanon in 2000, which was celebrated as the first uh, Arab victory against Israel since 1948. Um, and then, within Israel proper, as of 1996, uh, the Hamas uh, movement launched uh, mimicking itself, mimicking uh, uh, Hezbollah to a large extent, suicide attacks or martyrdom operations against Israeli civilians. Something which um, sort of led to a heated debate within uh, Sunni ranks. Uh, some uh, doctors of the law, Sunni doctors of the law, would say that it was perfectly okay, like uh, uh, the famous uh, Alim and the good friend of uh, Ken Livingstone, uh, Sheikh Mohammed al-Qardawi, who um, said that uh, in peculiar conditions of duress, as was the case in, um, in, uh, in Israel, um, it was perfectly legitimate to uh, target uh, civilians. And anyway, Israelis were not civilians because they were all, they were all doing their military service women included, so they were all soldiers who were temporarily in civilian clothes. And as far as children and, and whatever, they were collateral damage and uh, not, 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 no big deal. Um, others, uh, people in Saudi Arabia, Saudi ulamas, were much more cautious. And uh, they considered that, you know, this was really suicide attacks because they feared that the cycle of violence that was being engineered outside the grasp of the Saudi leadership could not be controlled and would one day or another become detrimental to the very Saudi system, which was to happen a few years afterwards. Nevertheless, uh, suicide attacks or martyrdom operations against Israel proved efficient. And even on Saudi television, you had, you had telethons for the families of the martyrs, i.e. The, the ones who blew up themselves. And uh, it proved extremely popular all around the Arab and the Muslim world. And so Al-Qaeda's strategy for 9-11 uh, was a blend of the uh, 
of those two issues, i.e. a sort of uh, uh, lessons learned, if you wish, from the failures of Sunni guerrilla jihads, which they had engineered, and an attempt to, uh, to hijack the experience of Hezbollah and Hamas, but for their own purpose, and to surf on that wave. And when they decided to, to blow up the, uh, uh, the World Trade Center and, uh, and the Pentagon and the Capitol, had the fourth uh, plane f fallen on the Capitol, then they, um, in a way, it was as if they, uh, it, it was just like an attack on an Israeli bus or pizza joint, but with with a much bigger magnitude, if you want. It was exactly, it was the same movement that they, they, had, oops, they had tried to, to engineer. And then there was a, a heated debate uh, within the Muslim world there again. Was 9-11 a martyrdom issue or was it suicide? And Sheikh Kardawi, who had uh, ruled that uh, attacks against Israel were martyrdom operations, ruled that, on the contrary, attacks against America <coughs> were suicide, so that their perpetrators were roasting in hell instead of enjoying the uh, paradise. And uh, nevertheless, uh, in spite of the fact that many people in the Muslim world said that uh, they did not approve of that, there was a feeling um, of, of revenge, if you wish, that uh, the uh, the arrogant Americans had been punished. And uh, even though, you know, there were a number of strange things saying that, you know, Muslims were unable to do that, uh, could not, and uh, that uh, there was a famous uh, telex or fax or whatever that was sent to Jews who were uh, working in the World Trade uh, Center building so that they would not come to the building th on this day, and, you know, this was a, a rumor that was, very, that was very widespread in the area at the time. And uh, in spite of this kind of sympathy, if you want, that, uh, that, um, that the bombings managed to attract on bin Laden, uh, nevertheless, the big issue for bin Laden was not sympathy, was not only to, uh, to have airtime, it was to, to achieve this project of mobilization that was uh, summed up by Zawahiri uh, in the title of his booklet, Knights Under the Prophet's Banner, which could translate as mobilizing the, ma the Muslim mas masses under uh, Al-Qaeda's uh, banner. Uh, and um, then the, the real issue um, a few years uh, after, in or a few years in retrospect, is to wonder whether or not they have managed to, to mobilize uh, Muslim masses under their banner. Uh, at first, uh, they had thought that uh, they could attract, they could trap U.S. and allied forces in Afghanistan, just like the U.S., just like the um, Red Army had been trapped there in the 1980s. Uh, and this is why, among other things, they killed uh, Commander Masoud. Uh, but the, uh, the operation that was conducted at the time um, did not really uh, lead to a defeat of the, of the Western forces. The, the Taliban were promptly ousted then, 
but Al-Qaeda could not be destroyed. They fled to, uh, most of them fled to the, the place they're probably hiding now in, uh, in Waziristan, on the other side of the, of the Pakistani-Afghan border, or the Durant line, on the, amongst the, the, the Pashtun tribes. And, uh, and then U.S. and uh, Allied forces were distracted from their original task, i.e. to destroy Al-Qaeda and its network, to embark into something else, which I will mention uh, later on, on the, in this war of terror narrative, that is to say the destruction of, of Iraq and uh, the building of a new Iraq on its ruins. Um, so for, uh, for Al-Qaeda, this first, um, this first attempt at, uh, at a provocation, if you wish, was a failure. And then you had a number of, of uh, copycat editions of 9-11, but with much less intensity, uh, where uh, you had bombings from Tunis to Bali to uh, Casablanca to Madrid and to London, of course, and uh, operations that were meant to show that Al-Qaeda was still alive and kicking, that had, uh, or, or bombing, if you wish that it had capacities to, um, for action, but in terms of what their ultimate goal was, i.e. mobilization of the Muslim masses, capacity to topple the regimes, it was also a failure. Finally, what they saw as their great option, their golden opportunity, was the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Uh, they, they believe that Iraq, you know, much more than Afghanistan that had always been marginal in the sort of Muslim cultural worldview. I mean, Afghanistan was a Muslim country, but, you know, people didn't know much about those guys in, up here in the mountains who spoke a language most people didn't understand. Iraq was the place of uh, Baghdad, of the Abbasid Caliphate, uh, well-known and renowned in uh, Arab and uh, Muslim culture. And the fact that crusader impious armies invaded Iraq was, so they thought, uh, an excellent opportunity for them to mobilize for jihad worldwide, as had been the case in Afghanistan. And they were convinced that they could, uh, uh, through uh, thanks to the, um, to the, the Iraq war, that they could attract uh, plenty of Muslims uh, from uh, everywhere in the world to Iraq to fight uh, crusaders, that those Muslims, uh, wherever they were in the world also, would, would mobilize against the, the, the local powers that be, uh, stooges of the West uh, or what have you, and that would create a movement that would lead the West to its destruction. And um, at first, it, it um, superficially or from a distance, it, it, it looked uh, it, like it, it would work, uh, as opposed to what people thought in, uh, in London or, uh, or Washington at the time. The Iraq war was not a cakewalk. Uh, on quite the contrary, there was this inser Sunni insurgency that was, had not been foreseen. And uh, the Al-Qaeda people, the foreign fighters uh, in Iraq, uh, came courtesy and stayed in Iraq courtesy of the Sunni insurgents. But soon enough, the, uh, the agendas of the Sunni insurgents and of Al-Qaeda became different. 
Um, Al-Qaeda <coughs> wanted to wage this sort of uh, universal jihad out of Baghdad. Baghdad and Iraq would be the sort of the metonymy, if you wish, for this worldwide jihad. Whereas the Sunni uh, insurgents, the local Sunni insurgents, had uh, different vested interests. They wanted to use the foreign fi fighters against the Shias, who were uh, privileged by the, uh, by the Americans, who wanted uh, to have uh, uh, a new Iraq uh, governed by a Shiite <coughs> majority, who was perceived as uh, non-necessarily hostile to the West and non-necessarily hostile to Israel. And that would also uh, allow uh, people to, to have a, a, a new revamped Iraq that would play a major role in the Middle East, that would uh, uh, pump a lot of uh, out of OPEC oil, uh, that would uh, give a lesson to the Saudis uh, for 9-11, and uh, uh, that would make of Iraq a swing producer uh, in the oil production, and uh, then that would deprive the Saudis of this uh, absolute hegemony on, uh, on, oil, on the oil market. Um, this did not go as planned, as you all know, and um, the problem was for Al-Qaeda, well, for Americans will, will, and, their, and their allies, I'll get back to that in a minute when I talk about the war on terror ground narrative, but as far as Al-Qaeda was concerned, um, the problem was jihad that the, uh, they thought would, uh, would be uh, attractive and all-encompassing turned into its contrary, something which is called in Arabic fitna, or uh, something that means uh, internal strife or civil war, if you wish, uh, and something which is perceived by uh, doctors of the law, uh, the ulema, the Muslim doctors of the law, as, as the, the most uh, dangerous thing that may happen to the, 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 the ummah, the community of believers, because when Muslims fight each other, and when the community is destroyed from the inside, then the community makes an easy prey for its outside enemies, the crusaders, the Zionists, uh, whatever, and uh, the non-Muslims in general. And uh, while Al-Qaeda uh, suicide bombers were blowing themselves up in crowded Shiite bus stations, markets, and the like, where the huge majority of casualties and deaths and, and the like in Iraq caused by Al-Qaeda were not Americans but fellow Iraqis and fellow Muslims, even though they were Shiites, your average Muslim uh, in the world, in the rest of the world, who was not that um, clear of the divide between Sunnis and Shiites, just didn't understand anything anymore. And this issue of jihad, you know, uh, waged by Al-Qaeda, looked like mere bloodshed. Uh, that led also to, um, to internal criticism within Al-Qaeda, people who started to say that sh uh, shedding Muslim blood was a major sin, that Zawahiri was following a foolish strategy. And um, that also led to the fact that the Americans probably with uh, some uh, after some sort of deal with uh, Sunni Gulf Arabs, started to see uh, local Sunnis um, turning 
their back on al-Qaeda and uh, passing alliances with, uh, with uh, U.S. troops, the so-called awakening, awakening brigades or the Sahwa movement, probably being paid with, uh, with oil money, and the deal being that those, uh, those Sunnis would have access to some part of the power in the new Iraq and some uh, share of the oil production. So that led to the fact that al-Qaeda in Iraq, which had believed it would, and if you look at Zawahiri, listen, or look at Zawahiri's tapes at the time, you see that he foresees an Islamic caliphate based in Iraq that will spread to the whole region, that will destroy the cardboard uh, country of Jordan, as he says, Daulat Kortuna, and uh, that will then reach out to, uh, to Palestine, destroy Israel, throw the Jews to the, to the sea, liberate that, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, in 2006, at the height of this delirium, um, uh, they even broadcasted uh, fake uh, TV um, uh, interviews where you had an Al-Qaeda guy um, who looked like a TV anchor but whose uh, face was blurred who would um, tell uh, viewers on the, on the, on the web uh, about the, you know, the Council of Ministers in the new uh, Iraqi uh, Islamic Emirate. And it, it just looked like um, the Ba'athist, uh, Saddam Hussein, people, you know, and minister of, uh, of uh, whatever, of war is uh, so-and-so, and minister of uh, industry is so-and-so. And, um, but this was just, became a fantasy, and, um, and uh, it's ended nowhere. And to a large extent, Iraq w was the cemetery, if you wish, of al-Qaeda's illusions. And who benefited from the Iraq war at the end of the day? The common nemesis of the Sunni radical extremists on the one hand, i.e. the heretic Shiites, and of the, uh, the U.S. administration, i.e. the uh, revolutionary uh, Iran. Now, let's uh, have, um, have a look at the, at the second grand narrative that developed to a large extent in parallel and that each one feeding the other, which is the, the narrative of the war on terror. Uh, when uh, George uh, W. Bush uh, came to the, to the White House, he was not, if you remember, he was not really interested in world affairs. Uh, he saw uh, Clinton's efforts at, uh, you know, engagement, state building, and whatever in the Middle East as futile, and um, you know he was was not at all into this this issue. Now with the 9/11. Uh, he, uh, he came under the influence or under the spell of uh, a number of his um, advisors who are known, as you all know, as the, as the neoconservatives, who uh, sold him uh, a new vision of the world uh, that uh, including a major uh, reshuffling of cards in the, in the Middle East. As, as you know, most, uh, most Arab Americans had voted for... Um, Bush because he was, uh, he was son of Bush and uh, Bush rhymes with oil uh, in Texas and uh, usually Republicans uh, in America were pro-Arab and pro-oil 
and Democrats were pro-Israel because for a number of reasons, among others, that upwardly mobile mobile Jewish populations were uh, were usually Democrat voters and contributors and so on and so forth. Then uh, the poor uh, American Arabs who voted for uh, for Bush were... uh, uh, had to be slightly disillusioned after a little while because uh, the uh, the neocon uh, worldview that that molded uh, the, the war on terror uh, was based on a vision of the Middle East that was completely different from the one of the previous uh, Republican administrations. And you have to remember that uh, probably the U.S. president, who was the most detrimental, detrimental to Israeli interests, had been George Bush, the father, when he twisted the arms of the Israelis uh, in uh, 2001 at the Madrid Peace Conference and, uh, and during um, the war for the liberation of Kuwait, where he did not allow uh, Shamir to retaliate, to um, the scuds that were uh, thrown, that were fired onto Israel from Iraq for fear that the coalition, where the anti-Iraqi coalition, where you had a number of, uh, of Muslim states, would break on that. Now, Bush, the son, uh, and his advisors then um, used the, I would not say the pretext, because 9-11 was for real, of course, but used the opportunity of 9-11, which is, you know, good politics. You, you, you take the opportunities and you use them for your own purpose. And this is not the first time in history and will, it will not be the first time in history. Um, so I fear. Uh, the, um, to advance th- their own agenda. And their own agenda was to uh, punish Al-Qaeda for some, to some extent. But, uh, you know, as I said previously, uh, the... Uh, the war in uh, in Afghanistan was uh, <coughs> did not go far enough, uh, and then the the war effort was distracted to something else, which was Iraq. And Iraq was more important because you would have then, after on the down on the ruins of the Saddam Hussein regime, you would have a pro-West and pro-pro-US, not anti-Israeli Iraq. On the one hand, it would uh, it would create a sort of um, a Shia state that would uh, uh, that would you know balance the power of Sunni in particular Saudi oil producers who were not trusted anymore because of the 15 Saudis out of 19 hijackers of 9/11. And um, it was perceived as a, a means of, demo- I mean, officially at least, or on the surface, as a means of democratizing the Middle East. That meant that a democratic Iraq would have immediate consequences <coughs> on Iran because Iranians would see, or the Iranian population or civil society would see that um, uh, Shias in Iraq were happy and democratic and then they would uh, uh, topple their own leaders and uh, they would end the, the Iranian theocratic regime. 
On the other hand, they would create a model for, for democracy, and there would, there would be a sort of virtuous or positive domino theory, if you wish. And then even American allies like Egypt and, uh, and Saudi Arabia and the like would be compelled to become democratic um, if, uh, if, they, uh, if, they did, if they did not want to, to disappear. So this was one of the, this was the, the, the issue or the, the core of the discourse on the surface, and it was quite attractive to a number of people, including in the Arab left and in the, in the left and in humanitarian groups in, uh, in the West. Uh, but then, uh, under the surface or below the surface of this democratic uh, narrative, there were two issues. One, the, the issue of Israel, uh, where, uh, for which the, the neocons were uh, absolutely adamant that uh, Sharon should not negotiate with the Palestinians. And when you think of 9-11, you also have to put it in, in its context. 9-11 uh, um, took place one year after the beginning of the Second Intifada. And uh, Arafat soon enough understood what use would be made of 9-11 against the Palestinian cause in the Second Intifada. And if you remember those images, it compelled Arafat to lift up his sleeve and give his blood for the victims of 9-11. I don't know if there was anyone in America that uh, used Arafat blood to, Arafat's blood to uh, have a transfusion, but this is another story. And then Sharon, of course, said, we have our own Ben Laden, and his, his name is Arafat, right? And um, so... Um, as far as, as, as the Palestinian-Israeli issue was concerned, uh, the, uh, the Iraq war, in a way, ran parallel to the, uh, to the situation in Israel. And actually, for a number of, of TV viewers, first and foremost, Al Jazeera, some of them are here, uh, viewers, and but not only Al Jazeera viewers, I mean, it was difficult to see the difference, actually, because it was there were the same tanks and the, even not exactly the same uniforms on the Israeli and American uh, uh, part, some in Iraq, others in, in Palestine. And uh, so this uh, this was one of the big issues, you know, under the discourse of the narrative of democratization was the narrative of of a totally pro-Sharon stance on the part of George W. and his advisors. The other issue that would undermine the, democratiza the democratization narrative much more deeply, probably, and that would start with uh, the Muslim world, civil societies, then go to the European civil societies, even in Britain and Spain, you know, whose governments had backed and participated in the war, and then finally, American, the American electorate who voted out um, the Republicans and then uh, Bush at the midterm and then presidential election was the issue of Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib, i.e., how could the grand narrative of democracy be based on uh, the, the incarceration without trial, in uh, renditions, on, on renditions, on torture, and so on and so forth. 
And you know, uh, Abu Ghraib was uh, more detrimental to the, the U.S. cause than anything else. And it undermined any kind of uh, public support to, um, uh, to the U.S. narrative of democratization in the area. Some people uh, would say, and that was right, that those uh, belles âmes, as we say in French, those beautiful souls uh, who uh, were horrified uh, at Abu Ghraib would not utter a word when Saddam Hussein tortured his opponents and killed them and no one would, would, would care, which is absolutely true. Uh, but Saddam Hussein uh, never, uh, you know, never said that he, he, were, he would base his, uh, his, uh, his regime on the values of freedom and democracy, or even if he said so, no one believed it. Whereas, uh, uh, you know, these were the core, these still are the core values of America. And so there was, there was a, a major discrepancy there that undermined, that deeply undermined America's image in the Muslim world, then uh, created a major rift on uh, both sides of the uh, Atlantic and, and the Channel, because, of course, Britain is... Uh, the, on the other side of the Atlantic, from our point of view, and um, at the time when when I was invited into Britain, I th felt that I, I came on enemy territory, and uh, <laughs> may still be the case, but I don't, I'll see. And uh, the um, um, and 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 that at the end of the day, I mean, uh, I guess was uh, was what allowed for this sort of, um, of, of major change in America that led to the election of the first black president with a Muslim name, Barack Hussein Obama, uh, as president of the United States. I mean, uh, among, because of the, it's, it's the economy stupid, of course, but it's uh, also in a context where uh, the white establishment had failed to deliver and had uh, betrayed the core values of the Ameri American people to such an extent that, after all, there was room for someone who looked like Obama and whose middle name was Hussein to save the system. Now, I'm, I'm, this is not my field, so I, I say that uh, with caution uh, under the, the hat of a uh, of the ideas people who know more than I do about America. Uh, and um, so this was also the, the end of the grand narrative of the war on terror. And uh, to a large extent, as was, has had been the case for Al-Qaeda, Iraq was also the cemetery of the war on terror's illusion because the transformation of Iraq into a pro-U.S., uh, pro whatever symbol of democracy, uh, uh, new Middle East um, fulcrum uh, in the region just proved to be a failure. Uh, not only that, but it reinforced Iran. And uh, in uh, in 2007, the Iranians uh, who had until then been governed by a, a group that had made openings to the West 
uh, under President Khatami, even though he was um, not entirely free of his movements, he was controlled by a complex system where he was not the ultimate decision maker, as we, we know, elected in an election that was uh, fraudulent or non-fraudulent, but elected, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Something uh, that meant that the Iranian regime believed that as America was um, entangled in Iraq, uh, Iran could uh, sort of, um, how do you say that in English, raise the bets or faire monter les enchères, have the, um, Marie, how do you say, faire monter les enchères, raise the stakes, thank you, in, uh, in, uh, in Iraq. And, you know, they could extract the most of the U.S., with a regime that would bark and bark and bark at them. That, you know, compromise was not giving anything. And the U.S. was in such a weak position in, uh, in Iraq that not only did they have to fight the Sunni insurgency, but if Iran was to unleash Shiite militias and uh, Muqtada al-Sadr's militias on, the, on, uh, on U.S. troops, then it would make their life very, very, very difficult. And so you had then a new situation where Iran and uh, Mr. Ahmadinejad started to become, and 2007 was uh, a year after which not only, uh, oh, 1997, so, sorry, was, um, no, when was he elected? Uh, sorry? 2005? Yeah, 2005, yeah, June 2005, absolutely. 2005 was, was a time when, um, when he, um, which, w which was probably the, the worst year in Iraq, and uh, when, in a way, Al-Qaeda would start its, its decline. Uh, Zarqawi would be killed uh, a year after, and uh, in the stead of Al-Qaeda, and of Zawahir in Bin Laden as the main figure of opposition to, um, to the West, you would have the Iranian regime on the one hand, and then you would have Hezbollah in Lebanon. Now, um, the... Um, These two ground narratives, as I tried to show you, um, functioned one against each other. And um, on the, the Bush administration was perfect for Al-Qaeda as, uh, as a target. And, uh, and Al-Qaeda was great for the Bush administration also as a target. Not that their own politics vis-a-vis -vis their own constituencies were not serious, but they, they sort of functioned as a, as a couple, if I may say so. With, uh, with the demise of both, uh, then we had uh, a new field, a new political situation taking shape in the Middle East, but a new political situation that had to deal with the remnants of the past. And uh, with the fact that... Um, you had a Middle East which was 
mainly organized around three axes of crisis. The first of which, being the, the, the oldest one, took place in the Levant between Israel and Palestine as a, as a primary contradiction, as the Maoists said in the good old days, with ripple effects within Lebanon that used the sectarian contradictions in Lebanon uh, as, a, as a sort of echo chamber and with the Syrian-Lebanese question also as an issue. And the, the legacy of the Bush administration was a total, and of the Sharon administration was stalemate. A stalemate that would um, lead, strangely enough, and uh, as if the Sharon administration, where Sharon was not um, around anymore and Arafat was not around either, um, as, as if the Sharon administration had been a, Sharon had been a sort of sorcerer's uh, apprentice, um, would lead to the strengthening of the elements of the Palestinian uh, political spectrum that was the most hostile to Israel, to the West, and uh, the least amenable to negotiation, i.e. Hamas. Uh, as you know, uh, Sharon um, decided that Arafat was not an, an interlocutor. He, um, um, Arafat could not leave his uh, Mukata headquarters in Ramallah until he finally embarked on a helicopter to, to die in Paris. Uh, and um, the um, uh, and then uh, Sharon uh, considered that he did not have to negotiate anything with the Palestinians. That you know, this was this very neocon view that Israel imposed its will by force and that any kind of negotiation would be perceived as a sign of weakness from the Jewish state. And this, in, in this um, state of mind, he decided the Gaza pullout. Now, the Gaza pullout could not be credited to Mahmoud Abbas because poor Mahmoud Abbas had done nothing for it. So, which is the, the Palestinian group who claimed credit from the Gaza pullout? Hamas. Hamas that said, you know, the reason why they pulled out, just like they pulled out from southern Lebanon because of Hezbollah's pressure, was because, because of jihad and of the second intifada that we have waged against them. And strangely enough, you know, militarily, the second intifada had been, uh, you know, the, the war was, was won militarily by Israel. After they built the wall and all the fence, uh, you know, the, the suicide operation stopped. And, uh, but the pullout, which was supposed to sort of accomplish the victory, meant that Hamas would use 
even though the Intifada was a military failure, would use it as a political victory and would win the elections of early 2006, right? And, uh, and so the legacy of, uh, of the Bush-Sharon uh, system, if you wish, or the neocon vision of, in the Middle East was, was, was a failure, blockade, Hamas victory. Then, uh, uh, you know, the, the problems in the, in the international, international system with Hamas victory, Hamas not being recognized, not being funded, being called a terrorist group, and so on and so forth. And that led in its stead to the fragmentation of Palestine and uh, the Gaza uh, Strip becoming a Hamas stand as of June uh, 2000, uh, July or June 2007, and Mahmoud Abbas uh, being in charge of, um, with Fatah of, uh, of the West Bank. So a major axis of crisis that became, remained a major irritant and, uh, and a, a catastrophic legacy of the Bush administration because with this irritant in the Middle East, then the whole region would always be contaminated and you could not uh, bring back the Middle East into, uh, if you wish, the, into the, the world system, a globalized, virtuous world system. Second axis of crisis, the Gulf whether you call it the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf or the Arabian-Persian Gulf. I will, out of cowardice, I will just call it the Gulf. And um, which is characterized by, at first and foremost, the fact that it's, the Gulf is all about oil and gas. And this is, you know, this is the region that exports the biggest quantity of uh, hydrocarbons in the world. And then you have a, a double a double rift, a double fault line. Persian versus Arabs, hence the name of the Gulf, and Shias versus Sunnis. All Persians are not Shias, most of them. There are, there's a few Baluchis on the uh, eastern part of, um, of uh, Iran, which are in a in quasi-insurgency state against, uh, against the Shia regime in Tehran but most are, and all Arabs are not Sunnis. Uh, Iraqis are Shias in their majority. Bahraini is a tiny country, but it's 70% uh, Shia. Kuwait is 30% Shia. Um, Saudi Arabia, we don't know, 15% Shia, something like that, but Shias had the bad idea to uh, be concentrated on the Gulf, on, on, the, on the oil fields. Since then, the Saudi government organized transmigration and uh, implanted a number of Sunnis on those, on those fields. And then Shia influence and Shia Iranian influence is extremely important in merchant families in Dubai. And, and uh, Dubai is, is, the, is the lungs of, of Iran. It's the, what allows Iran to breathe in spite of the embargo. Um, and then we have, uh, we have a new Iran, which thanks to, uh, to George W. Bush, elected Ahmadinejad, that decided to, um, to make its outing, if I may say so, on its nuclear program, something which is perceived on the other side, 
by the Gulf Arabs as a major threat. Uh, the Israelis consider, and they, this is a way for them to say that they're, they're the bulwark against the barbarian Ahmadinejad, uh, that the, um, the Iranian uh, would-be bomb is directed first and foremost against them. But the ones who fear but the Israelis has, have uh, retaliation possibilities. The ones who fear the Iranian bomb most are the Arab states on the other side of the Gulf because an Iranian nuclear military capacity would mean that the whole Gulf, in spite of uh, alliances uh, the, with the West, uh, American protection, and we now even with the French open a base in Abu Zabi, uh, even in spite of that, nevertheless, you would have a local, the, the regional superpower with the nuclear capacity, which would be Iran. And that would change the whole balance of forces in the, in the region. Third axis of crisis, uh, what is called in the, in the American news speech, uh, AFPAC which is the sort of this Afghanistan-Pakistan region. The Pakistanis are furious at this, um, <laughs> at this uh, new, new word. They say we have nothing to do with Af. We are Pakistan. We are, if it weren't difficult enough to have created Pakistan as a co coherent entity, now if you have Af, it's even more complicated. And um, um, AFPAC, where you where the good old Taliban's who were Taliban who were uh, supposed to have disappeared from uh, from the map uh, after the, the, the mopping up of uh, the, the fall of 2001 have uh, have mushroomed back, and um, and where uh, Hamid Karzai, who was nominated the most elegant president of year 2002 or something by Vogue magazine is uh, now, um, you know, has difficulties being uh, uh, re-elected because um, one never finishes to count and recount the, the ballots and the votes and to say whether it was fraudulent, whether it was uh, poppy-oriented, whether uh, what have you, uh, which does not give great stamina to uh, the NATO soldiers who are fighting against the Taliban and for Karzai and his... Uh, in his cronies. Now, um, those three axes of crisis are, are the legacy of the, of the Bush uh, war and of the Al-Qaeda uh, uh, grand narrative, if you wish. And um, the challenge of President Obama was, uh, you know, from Osama to Obama, if I may say so, uh, was to um, was to try to 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 find a way out of this quagmire, and um, he tried to um, to work on all fronts simultaneously, but with a clear priority, which was something which was quite logical had it worked at Iran and. His advisors and himself considered that the key to the three axes of crisis was Iran. That if he could 
bring the Iranians towards a sort of much more accommodating position, then that would uh, solve to a large extent <coughs> the Gulf crisis. That the Gulf crisis was crucial to the resolution of the Levant crisis because Iran is Hezbollah's and to a lesser extent Hamas's godfather is Syria's backer and then if you had a reconciliation between the Iranians and the Arabs and the West then uh, then there would be much much less pressure and then you could uh, force concessions on the parts of the Israelis and uh, at the time uh, uh, Olmert was in power and um, Mrs. Livni, except that Mrs. Livni believed that uh, Operation Cast Lead would uh, would uh, bring bring her to power, which, and as you know, it brought Bibi Netanyahu to power, and um, and that it will also be a major uh, breakthrough in the AFPAC crisis because. <coughs> um, the attack of Afghanistan under the Taliban in the fall of 2001 was, was made possible courtesy of Iran that led the U.S. and allied planes uh, flow over its territory. And at the Bonn conference in December 2001 that decided on the future of Afghanistan, the Iranians were present. This open-hand policy towards Iran, in a way was to some extent the same policy as Bush's policy but with totally different means i.e. for the Bush administration the Shias were the target I mean whether by force or by by, by friendship or by uh, whether with a carrot or with a stick the big issue was to tilt the Shias towards the West. Uh, and I, I will always remember once I, I, I went visiting uh, Paul Wolfowitz in the, in the Pentagon and uh, while he was uh, Under Secretary for Defense, or I don't remember the title exactly, and you know, you get in the Pentagon building and you cross all those stops and uh, they look at. Uh, at the time, being French in America was not great, and uh, and, uh, and then you have all those uh, crop uh, cuts uh, guys uh, from the Midwest, and, so, yeah. and uh, then I came into the waiting room, and um, and much to my dismay, um, I found myself surrounded by uh, people who were speaking not English with a Midwest accent, but Arabic with a Mideast accent. And uh, I looked at them most closely. Some of them were dressed in clerical, typical clerical Shia robes. And, uh, and those guys were, their Arabic was Iraqi. So when I was introduced to uh, Wolfowitz, I uh, said, well, I was, it was ama- it's, uh, kind of amazing to get in the heart of the Pentagon, you know, what it materializes, and um, that was before the invasion of Iraq, and uh, 2002, and to find so many Shias here, 
after all, Shiism was still the absolute evil to some extent. The Iranian re revolution said, no, 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 those people are our allies and uh, uh, they applauded me 17 times when uh, I made a speech this morning, much more than what I got today. Right? And uh, the... Um, and the um, I have two minutes left. That's not, not going to be more. Uh, you know, I was told in America I always had to finish with an anecdote, so this is what you're having. And um, and he said, you know, um, Shiites to a large extent are just like Jews. You know, they were deprived from a state by their oppressors. Uh, in the good old secular days the sons of the Ayatollahs became leaders of the communist parties, just like in the West, much of the communist uh, establishments, uh, people were sons of rabbis or of Jewish uh, cobblers. And, uh, and you know, these are people on which we can, we can count. You know, they're, they're educated, they're modern, and they're, um, I said, well, if you say so, <laughs> I mean, whenever I've met those kind of politicians, they always tend to lecture me on the Middle East, so I listen to them politely. And, um, you know, this was their intention. Well, it so happened that it was not exactly the case and that they had to use force against <coughs> Iran and Iraq to some extent. But then, and I believe that this is still the case, it was still the case originally in the Obama administration, that they thought that opening their hands towards the Shias and towards Iran was the, was the way to, uh, to sort of, of, of break um, the knot, if you wish, of those three axes of crisis and that they would pull on the uh, Iranian string and then the whole uh, puzzle would open, if I'm looking for a metaphor, but my poor English doesn't allow me to do it. And... Um, now he got a slap in the face with the re-election of Ahmadinejad, even if we can think that, I don't believe that the, the, what was important was the demonstrations of uh, civil society in Iran. I'm not even sure that Ahmadinejad uh, really lost and that he won only because of, of fraud. Um, but what was important, I believe, what may prove more important is that it's the first time when you have a clear rift in the regime. But I'll leave that for another lecture so just like Sheherazade, I mean, you'll have the opportunity to come back. Uh, and um, now, with the with the, and with and the failure of this opening to to Iran, which he tried to compensate with the, the, the speech in Cairo, in the, you know the capital of Sunni uh, Arab uh, world, uh, which uh, there again. You know, created many hopes, probably uh, uh, amongst the Norwegians, because uh, they gave them the Nobel Prize. But as far as the, uh, as Muslims, I'm not sure that it. Oh, sorry for uh, you know, ideas is half under, controlled by Norway, so I think I, I've lost my half of my salary tonight. And um, the um, so I'm trying to look, looking at Ireland and Wales for. Uh, didn't say anything wrong again. And uh, the, um, uh, so this is, uh, this is where we are now. And um, I, I believe that um, 
the uh, the Obama administration, uh, I mean, has tried to to find an alternative narrative built on uh, on human rights. On the, but for the time being, you know, the, he's still plagued with uh, with the remnants. I mean, we we still have the uh, the pieces of the puzzle. Uh, they don't work together as they did when we had the previous narratives. We have new actors, uh, but uh, you will not know before the next lecture uh, how uh, those things will end. Did I tease interest enough for your cycle of lectures? Well, thank you yeah. for tonight. And, uh, Thank I'm you at your much. disposal for uh, Thank you very much, Gilles, for, those, uh, for those comments on the Anglo-Norwegian-French relationship um, and ideas. We have about 20, 15 minutes or so for, for some Q&A. With the tour de raison like that, I think uh, there will be quite a lot of questions. Where's the person with the microphone, please? Thank you. There's a gentleman down here. If you could just leave quietly and quickly. I think we get on straight away. And who's got the microphone upstairs? Okay, the gentleman here. If you could make your questions uh, brief and, and sharp, please. Thank you very much, sir. I'm surprised, uh, Professor, you've been uh, taken in by Zionist and Western propaganda about Iran. I've been taken in by what? Zionist propaganda. Zionist and Western propaganda. Uh, you see about bogeyman Iran. Iran about what? Bogeyman Iran? Yeah, Iran is a bogeyman. It's, it's, oh, yeah. it's not translatable, I don't think. And Iran has not invaded any country past past several hundred years. And I'm surprised that you even doubt, you see, the real election of Ahmadinejad. I think you've been taken into a propaganda of the Zionist and Western place. Okay, right. Great. So well, I'm well, a Zionist and, and agent, uh, Zionist and Western you, agent. You, well, you've been accused of worse in your life. Yes, really, yes, you know? yes. No, uh, we'll no. pick that question up on, on Iran, whether you're demonizing Iran for whatever yeah. particular No, reason. I'm not, actually. But no, I, know, I didn't think you were right. But anyway, there's a gentleman, the lady in the middle, a lady in the middle. I'm going to take two or three here. Yeah. Demonized Norway, but nothing. Yeah, you're horrible. <laughs> but everybody's horrible to Norway, you know. I mean, you know, they've got so much oil. Oh, yeah, yeah. Quiet down now. Please, madam. Professor, I have a question regarding the uh, nuclear issue about Turn Iran. Turn yeah. can I hear yeah, me? That's good. Um, the threat that it poses to Arab states and to Americans, um, what do you think would be the best strategy for, um, for America to deal with this threat? Because it seems that America, along with France and Germany, have not ruled out military action in Iran. Obviously, their priority is to try the diplomatic approach, but they have not yet ruled out military approach. Do you think that if um, the diplomatic approach does not work, do you think that military action on Iran would solve the threat? Okay, we're back on Iran again on military. Uh, yeah. well, for Let me just take one last okay. step, Gilles, yeah. from this gentleman up here, and then we'll take those together. Two Iran questions. Maybe, yeah, sir. Right. Um, you mentioned, uh, well, my question is largely to do with Iran, actually. Just All right. Okay. Um, sorry. <laughs> uh, you mentioned relations between um, al-Qaeda in Iraq and Sunnis in Iraq. And I'm just wondering as to whether the uneasy relationship that you mentioned um, isn't really just, I mean, I mean, I don't think it was actually as uneasy as one would suspect because um, I think that, I mean, well, basically when you refer to Sunnis, I'm not sure who you're exactly referring to. And also secondly, um, that there is actually quite a sort of appropriation of the tactics used by the Al-Qaeda in Iraq by 
this one needs or whoever, whoever you're referring to. And the second question is... Uh, try not to move your mic out to yeah, your... Ah, Try Far from your mouth. mouth when you is talk, that, because yeah. usually works I better see that, way. that this is the <laughs> emphasis of your question, but then I can't hear anything. So, uh, so yeah. can you hear now? Yeah, we can much hear better. much better than the mic much and the mouth. Okay, so, so just to be short, the question was um, the relationship between Al-Qaeda in Iraq or, 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 and um, Sunnis, Sunnis in Iraq. Iraq yeah. And I was wondering who are you exactly referring to? Are you referring to Bartfist, or who are you exactly referring to? And the second part of that question is... Um, isn't there actually a, a much closer relationship between the two in terms of the appropriation of the tactics used by Barthes shown in August, for example, with the suicide bombing in, of, of public buildings? Um, so, I mean, isn't there actually mu much more of a continuity in, um, in, in sort of tactics used by these organizations rather than sort of a, a much sort of discordant yeah. relationship between the two? Okay. That's okay, Gilles, can you go on there? Okay. As far as Iraq is concerned, um, I believe that um, you know most of the Al-Qaeda people, people in Iraq were not Iraqis. They were foreigners uh, who were hosted in Iraq by um, Sunni constituencies, whether they be uh, Ba'athists <coughs> or, uh, or tribal leaders, and uh, uh, who had a vested interest in common, i.e. to fight uh, Western presence, not only because it was Western presence, but because they would deliver Iraq to the Shiites, and when they would they would deliver Iraq to the Safavids, or i.e. to uh, the the Iranians, right? Uh, and this was uh, this was a big fear of the um, of the um, of the Iraqi Sunnis, uh, and. Uh, so Al-Qaeda was very useful uh, in this respect. But I believe Al-Qaeda, even though the tactics were, looked the same, and even though at the time you, know, you, had, you had radical indigenous Sunni groups that also took hostages and beheaded people and the like, nevertheless, at the end of the day, the ultimate goals of Al-Qaeda, which was to use Iraq as a platform for uh, the, you know, this global Islamic emirate on the one hand, and the aims of the local Sunnis who couldn't care less about the global Islamic something, who were interested in their share of power and oil in Iraq, proved different. Uh, and this is why so many uh, Sunni tribal leaders could, uh, you know, um, uh, turn their back on Al-Qaeda and embrace General Petrus's uh, strategy after the surge. Now, the fact that you still have people growing themselves up in, in Iraq is part and parcel of a negotiation between, uh, you know, for power and the bidding for power, and uh, the uh, Sahwa people believe that they do not get enough of, um, of the cake for the time being, and they want to, to have more... Um, this is part of the general bidding, I think. <coughs> but it doesn't have anything to do with, with the issue of Al-Qaeda. I believe that Al-Qaeda, as a contender for power in Iraq, is, uh, is not well anymore. Now, as far as, uh, as Iran is concerned, and for fear of being called uh, 
Zionist and an imperialist. Uh, I always prefer to be called a, a frog. Oh, am I taking this wrong? Okay, but you know, well, that's life. Uh, I may, because I'm so stupid. And um, the um, um, how how could the um, um, how could um, then when the, the Zionists and the imperialists, i.e. the West, um, fight against the um, the Iranian uh, nuclear threat now. Uh, first, the first issue is that um, are the Iranians um, entitled, and by which standards, to have or not to have access to nuclear technology? Um, well, this can be divided into two uh, sub-questions. The first one is uh, civilian nuclear technology and uh, everyone everywhere that can afford it now wants to have access to nuclear civilian nuclear technology and the, the French, the Americans and the others are competing like crazies uh, in order to, to win the nuclear um, contract for uh, in Abu Zabi uh, 40 uh, billions of euros I think worth and um, and then, you know, why would you have uh, nuclear plants in Abu Zabi and maybe tomorrow in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and not in Iran? And uh, nuclear, nuclear technology, which was demonized a few years ago, as you know, that the worst of technologies is now perceived as the cleanest and a sort of super green technology, as you know, uh, because it doesn't lead to global warming. Um, also, some say that after all, and I would not be far from this point of view, I don't know whether it's a Zionist or imperialist, but it's my point of view, that um, actually uh, the fact that you would have uh, uh, nuclear plants in, uh, in Hobar in Saudi Arabia on the one hand and in Bandar Abbas on the other side of the Gulf in, in, uh, in Iran would be one of the best means to, you know, to diffuse tension in the region because uh, if the Iranians blew up the, um, the, uh, the Saudi plant or if the Saudis or the Israelis or what have you blew up the Iranian plant, then the nuclear cloud does not make any difference between Shias and Sunnis or Arabs and uh, Persians, right? And uh, everybody is, uh, it's, it's only the French who believe that the Chernobyl cloud stopped at the French-Italian border and uh, everything <laughs> too. And um, so the, um, this is something that uh, clearly um, uh, I think has to be put in, in, in relative terms. Now, the real issue, of course, is not that you have, not that you have a civilian uh, nuclear uh, power it's that you have a military nuclear power and it's not it may not only be that uh, and as you said Israel has it and Israel has not signed the TNP and has never said that it has it India and Pakistan have it and they never uh, signed the TN the NPT it's non-proliferation NPT uh, but they 
have never used their weapons. And um, after all, Pakistan and India being nuclear powers, to some extent this has helped diffuse the tension between the two countries because each other knows that if he is invaded by the other, you know, the other may retaliate and no one is going to risk it. Except that when you have Pakistan as a failed state and the military which is partially pro um, uh, Taliban or what have you, then you're, you, you, you're, you're at risk of proliferation by uh, you know, people who would sell dirty weapons as, as was feared for some time and still is feared after the demise of the Soviet Empire. The problem is not, I believe, at the end of the day that Iran has access to nuclear weapons. I, I think that whatever is done, they will have access to nuclear weapons. The problem is that Iran does not use its nuclear weapons. And uh, that means that Iran has to be attracted into a security system uh, where it is it should not use it. And uh, where the Iranian uh, government, whatever it is, in, it is in the future, believes that its interests lie in, the, in its alliance with the West and uh, it's mainly in exporting its gas through um, gas pipes that cross other countries with which it has to ally and, and, and uh, that it does not to be hostile against. And uh, the issue of, um, you know, the nuclear issue is, uh, is not an issue of you, you can't have it, but it's rather an issue of uh, uh, why you won't use it. And um, I, I don't think that uh, the military option Against uh, against Iran is sound, you know. <coughs> Even though uh, there was uh, an article recently by a Saudi columnist asking uh, the U.S. and Israel to bomb Iran as soon as possible after the um, the calm uh, facility was discovered, because clearly the Iranians are not saying all the truth about rather, but neither are the Israelis. If you and um, I, I don't think that um, that this is, I mean, that, uh, a, a, um, I'm not sure that with its um, its army clogged in uh, in Iraq with the stalemail in Afghanistan, the U.S. and most of its Western allies can uh, uh, can bear the opening of the third front in uh, in Iran. Any other question? No, I, th I think on that, at least op the one optimistic note of the whole evening, I think we will uh, draw, the, uh, draw the proceedings to an end. Le let me just make uh, one or two quick announcements before I can quickly move to thanks. Just to remind you that on the 10th of November, um, Ideas will be launching its Middle East program under the chairmanship of uh, Professor Nigel Ashton. But, uh, and I'd also like to welcome here this evening, Gilles is... Uh, of course, as you, as you may have noticed, uh, um, French. 
but I, I'd also like no, one, no, of the, nobody one, is of the new, one of the new appointments we've made at the permanent appointment we've made at the LSC is Professor Fawaz Jogesh. He was here this evening, so welcome to Fawaz. We're very pleased to have you here. It is, I think, very important because it's, it's part of the commitment of LSE and certainly of ideas, but certainly of ideas more generally to the study of this most important and controversial of regions as we picked up again this evening. The second lecture in the series will come on the 24th of November where we'll be on jihad and the trail of political Islam. I just want to say thank you to two people. Firstly, to Emmanuel Roman, who's not here this evening, unfortunately, for the generous donation that has made this chair and this lecture here possible this evening. But secondly, to Professor Gilles Capel with great wit. Uh, I'd almost say he's got a sense of British humor uh, here this evening. Gilles, thank you very much for Tour de Raison. We look forward to your day on the 24th.